All right, if you'll open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34, we'll pick back up here in verse 18 from where we left off a week ago. And it says here in Genesis 34 verse 18, And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So let's back up. We did leave off with verse 17, but let's back up and understand what the and there. It's kind of like a therefore. What What is the therefore or the wherefore therefore? We need to go find out. I don't have a Justin Meyer riddle for all that. But um, you can tell there's something we're missing if we start with verse 18 is, is the short of it. It says uh, back in verse 14, And they said unto them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you. Remember, these are the sons of Jacob speaking here. If ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised, then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take our, your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then will we take our daughter, and we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. And the young man deferred, which means uh, tarried or delayed, not to do the thing. So he tarried not, he delayed not, or deferred not to do the thing, because he had delight in Jacob's daughter Dinah. And he was more honorable than all the house of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came under the gate of, the, of their city, and communed with the men of their city, saying, These men are peaceable with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land, and trade therein. For the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the men consent unto us, for to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us be circumcised, as they are circumcised. And then here's where that, uh, you recall last Wednesday I said their sales pitch to Jacob was that uh, they'd be a unified people, that they would grow and be profitable together. Well, here's what they take back to their own people. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. And unto Hamor and unto Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of, the, of his city, and every male was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city." The title of our outline tonight is The Spoiling of the Shechemites, which follows the defiling of Dinah. Uh, if you weren't here last Wednesday, um, these, this Hamor, the Shechem, these people basically had their way with Jacob's daughter Dinah um, and then claimed to love her. And they brought a, a what they thought to be a peace treaty or a profitable offer unto Jacob that they go ahead and just give Dinah up for marriage that they give Dinah up and, uh, and let her be a type of peace treaty between the existing tribes and God's people in the land. Some very important groundwork is laid here for us to consider historically. Circumcision was common in other nations besides the Israelites. It just wasn't common to the Shechemites. So the suggested practice would not have been extremely offensive or even strange to the Shechemites. They would have heard of it before. And who could deny the benefits that Hamor and Shechem laid out, both to Jacob and his people, as well as to their own people? We'll be one land. They'll be one with us. And here the picture that they are for the reader is the world. They'll be one with the world if we do this thing. If we simply do this one type of 
sacrament, we'll say. Going to follow up on that in a minute. If we do this one thing for their religious preferences, we'll have unity. We'll have peace. We'll have profitability. Going a little bit further, as we see there in verse 23 and 24, we'll have their cattle. We'll have their substance. We'll have their beasts. Something for us to consider, though, is the tendency of man already here to adopt very obviously religious practices for worldly gain. We don't see hesitation at all from the Shechemites to do this thing. It might be encouraging to us to see some kind of hesitation from Jacob's sons before offering such a thing. Was this the, the invitation God would have had for them? Is this how he would have had them to, to handle business? Is, this is where we ended our last outline. Is this God's way? As stated previously in our study, the old gears of Babylon that were once set in motion are shown here to still exist. They're still grinding away. Sadly, here we find God's own taking to a very deceptive practice in order to claim revenge. What are they doing? Like their old man, they're usurping God himself. Because who was to have revenge? Who was God's people to trust with vengeance, with revenge? It was God himself, was it not? But Jacob's sons say, Dinah's defiled, we will not have it. We will not tolerate this thing. Vengeance shall be ours. Might make for a good Hollywood movie, folks. But it's not how Christians are to live. You can't be both vengeful and forgiving. It's near impossible. And you can't say, I'll forgive once I have vengeance. Once I've tormented them back a little bit, then forgiveness shall be had by all. It's not how it works. It should be noted the Catholic Church also utilized these same similar practices in order to assimilate the pagan masses into their religious infrastructure. For the sake of numbers, for the sake of conquering land, they adopted any pagan tradition they had to. And it still shows. We talked about it, those who stuck around on Sunday, just in conversation. We talked about these same practices. But you don't need a Baptist writer or a Catholic writer to shine light on these things. You simply need a good encyclopedia, of which we have in the library. I haven't looked into those particular ones, but I can tell you the 1978 Encyclopedia Britannica held back no facts. Satan doesn't have to. Our flesh loves these traditions so much. How do, why do we think the pagans took them on to begin with? But here the cat, we see Jacob's son saying, assimilate to a bit of our religion and have access to everything. Catholics said the exact same thing. It's the reason we became their enemies, because the Baptists would not budge. The Baptists would not change baptism from what Christ's baptism was. And therefore they died. Therefore they were slaughtered. Therefore, they were humiliated and hung as Roman candles in the streets, boiled alive, sawed asunder or in half, flayed, which means skin removed. Assimilate. Get on board. This is essentially what Jacob's boys were saying. As I'd said uh, last time, a simple study of Xmas and its multifaceted forms and practices would reveal at their root an adoption for worldly gain from jolly old St. Nick all the way down to the mistletoe. 
It all has a representation of something historically that Baptists, if you're going to get involved with it, you ought to understand the traditions that you are playing with. May the Lord remove us and protect us from such practices without biblical merit. In grief over Dinah, comma, Jacob must have isolated himself. Someone was critiquing my outline before. I just want to make sure I got that comma in there. We don't see Jacob at all. The, the, the pitch was given. Hamor and Shechem had this idea, this uh, consolidation effort, and it was presented to Jacob. And Jacob seemingly was speechless. He even delays a bit because the boys are in the field, Scripture said that we read last time. Where is he? We don't see his involvement in this plan by his sons, nor in what's about to come next. In fact, the next mention of Jacob seems to be his discovery of what transpired, and we'll see him in a minute all the way down to the last two verses of this chapter. Now, as said in our meeting, and I've said before, the chapter breaks came in with, tradition, uh, with the translation, but it is interesting to me with the particular chapter breaks that we have that since we've started following Jacob as the promised seed, a lot of these chapters, Jacob's in the beginning, Jacob's in the end, and there's a whole lot of stuff in the middle, but narrowly do we ever see Jacob beseeching the Lord in any of that middle context. Jacob in the beginning, Jacob in the end. What is the writer essentially doing? Reminding us the stories about Jacob and his family, but showing us that uh, he's not leading. He's not leading. We also do not find Reuben nor Judah involved in the planning nor acting out of what comes next. Uh, it could be, as I'll show you here in just a second, uh, that neither of these had interest in bloodshed. Probably the most popular or famous text that many of us in the room are aware of with Reuben and Judah is what will take place later with Joseph. And consider what we see in Genesis 37. We read in verse 21, And Reuben heard it, their plan that they had laid out, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him, speaking of his brother. In verse 26, just five verses later, Isaac, we read, And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Um, these are just one-verse examples for each, but it does kind of speak to their character that perhaps bloodshed wasn't something that they were interested in is not necessarily a redeeming quality uh, but we don't have enough proof to say that all of the sons of Jacob are involved in what's transpiring here think for a moment the impact on this city this day when every man coming in and going out of the gate is circumcised at the encouragement of Hamor and Shechem everything in the city stops uh I don't know that there's anybody in the room really that can relate to what this might have been like. Uh, but, I mean, ladies, you've no doubt experienced pain that surpasses what a circumcision would feel like. But these grown men being circumcised uh, weren't likely going back out in the field an hour later. Uh, they would have been in pain. They would have had to rest. Uh, and this was the plan, after all. This was exactly what the sons of Jacob were hoping for. So, again... Picture the city that day. Maybe the hustling and bustling that you would normally hear if you were uh, walking by the city, you don't hear this day as everybody's resting. It's kind of like COVID happened that day. Everybody's off the streets. Maybe as you go by the, the, the tents and the tabernacles, you hear, oh, just painful moans as these men, again, were laid up from what they just committed themselves unto. 
Hard not to draw another picture there, is it not? When man succumbs to these types of traditions, he is typically found weak and laid up. I'll let you connect the dots. But you see what, what is being pictured here for us. Every male was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. Let's consider the next few verses here. We're just going to read up to the point where Jacob comes back, essentially, starting in verse 25. And it came to pass on the third day, when they were sore, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep, took their oxen, took their asses, and that which was in the city, they took it all. And that which was in the field, and all their wealth, and all their little ones, and their wives took they captive, and spoiled even all that was in the house. Is this the victory for God's people? Is this the way it should have been? Now we know that there's places in Scripture when the Israelites were coming back into this same land, the same promised land, when the Lord does give instruction, as we read last Sunday, honestly, in Joshua, to go in and essentially annihilate, that they have the victory. But they were never to spoil, even in those circumstances. This is a clever plan for sure. But was it the will of God? It's important that we ask those questions, because just when we come up with something that we find to be clever, doesn't mean it was sovereign doesn't mean it was inspired. doesn't mean we should have anything to do with it. Listen to Matthew Henry. He writes, The Shechemites submitted to the sacred right only to serve a turn to please their prince and to enrich themselves. And it was just with God to bring punishment upon them. God did allow it. As nothing secures us better than true religion, so nothing exposes us more than religion only pretended to. But Simeon and Levi were most unrighteous. Those who act wickedly under the pretext of religion are the worst enemies of the truth and harden the hearts of many to destruction. The crimes of others form no excuse for us. Alas, how one, is, how one sin leads to another and like flames of fire spread desolation in every direction. Foolish pleasures lead to seduction. Seduction produces wrath. Wrath thirsts for revenge. The, the thirst of revenge has recourse to treachery. Treachery issues in murder, and murder is followed by other lawless actions. Were we to trace the history of unlawful commerce between the sexes, we should find it, more than any other sin, ending in blood. Beloved, such will be the ending to all false religions, but by the grace of God, that they might be delivered. This is no light thing to play with, to tell the world that they can have Jesus, to tell the world that they can have the blessed hope that is spoken of there in Hebrews 11.1. 1. There's no light thing to say they can simply have it by performing some act. The reason you hear preachers, and some of them this weekend said, uh, that we preach against mourners' benches and uh, specific recited prayers and inviting Jesus in, 
is because it is dangerous. It is toxic. It is giving false hope. And I ask you, can false hope truly compare to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus? If not, we ought not be sharing it. We ought not be proliferating it. We ought not be promoting it. There is but one Christ Jesus. There is but one hope. That's him, his blood. No pretend blood, no pretend repentance, no pretend humbling, no sacramental rites to be performed, no works to be measured up to. There is simply the grace of God and nothing else. There wasn't multiple arcs that delivered from the flood. There was but one, pitched inside and out, full atonement. They slew the men and took back their sister. Did this undo the sin? Was Dinah's defilement reversed? Was her defilement atoned for? Was the sin of the man who defiled her, raped her, was his sin atoned for? No, beloved. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain or fatally wounded and took their city. Look at the text. They took their sheep, their oxen, their asses, that which was in the city, that which was without the city, in the field. All their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. Man has ideals of getting even. One wrong justifying another. Consider the reputation God's chosen seed now had in Canaan. Consider their reputation. Look at verse 18. And their words pleased Hamor. Well, wrong chapter. 33, 18. And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city. This was the only reputation he had up till now. And over time, we don't know how much time between chapter 33 and 34, he became, the reputation slightly shifted a bit. He has a beautiful daughter named Dinah. And she's befriended other ladies in the city that she went to fellowship with or to get to know. And we don't know the exact practice of that as we talked about last Wednesday. But at some point, things shifted. And when hurt fell, when a, when a storm comes through, when a famine hits the land, which we've already seen in, in 34 chapters, famines tend to do. Their reputation changed drastically as being usurpers of God, deceitful in their dealings. This, this would have drastically hurt Abraham's reputation. He didn't deal with folks like this. Now, he did during the two famines. But after that, as we, as we see the text refer to him as a friend of God, he was only honest in their dealings, paying what was asked for for the cave and being forthcoming with those that he had to uh, barter with. He didn't barter. He paid what was offered, or what was asked, rather. But this was the land promised to God's people. Would this be their reputation years from now when Joshua brings them back? I like what um, Steve and I were talking recently about how the Israelites' journey extended when the spies uh, came back with the evil report. And he, I think he said, Milburn, you always used to say, that gave them even more time to get out of the promised land. I like that. But think of the reputation that the Israelites had. 
these descendants of Jacob, these descendants of Joseph, and that's how they got to Egypt, and Joseph being a son of Jacob. Well, I tell you, you know, hundreds of years prior to, they were dirty. They slayed the Shechemites. They were dishonest. They forced their religion upon them and then slain them while they were down. And then they spoiled the city. This is the reputation that God's people now have, not in some no-place uh, Padanaram way up northeast on that map, but in Canaan, the promised land. Be ye holy, for I am holy, the Lord says. Beloved, as we look at, as you all look at that map, as we look at this map, it's not these gray areas of question where this happened. It's the promised land itself. In the previous chapter there in verse 18 was when they arrived. And this is the reputation they have now. Are God's people justified to enslave the world? There's something unique about this text. Jacob had a relationship and an understanding of God's expectations that the world did not have. He had a responsibility to represent that. What was in the vision that the Lord gave one of Abraham's enemies? That Abraham was a prophet. Jacob here is really no less. He is conversing with Jehovah. He's conversing with God. His name had been changed chapters before this one. He was to represent God here. Not be God, but represent God in his actions. Be ye holy, for I am holy. But instead he's quiet while his sons enslave the world. Some will say, well, they, they slain them. Well, they enslaved them first. They taught them religious practices. Essentially, they taught them religion. The Roman Catholic's own pope first introduced the concept of slavery to those in Africa. Look it up. As much as they come after the Southern Baptists, as much as they accuse the South of introducing such things, it began with the Pope. That's not a history you're going to find in your school books, children. Consider also the trail of blood that leads from the cross to the doorstep of pseudo-religious terrorism and has for ages. It seemingly begins right here with Jacob's sons and a father who didn't lead them. A father who didn't speak the, that revenge will be God's. I understand that to be a father of Dinah in this moment of trial, it would have been hard to find any kind of words. But you have to. It would have been difficult to try and tell her that things are going to work out. But you have to point to God. To lay claim to the only religion, all others must be extinguished, says Rome. Was this God's way or man's way? Consider the last two verses, and suddenly Jacob arrives on the scene. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, the two sons that have been named in this chapter for being behind the whole thing, ye have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land. Jacob already speaks to an understanding of how this will be received. Among the Canaanites, among the Perizzites, and I did switch the map so you can have an idea. Uh, Shechem is... Uh, I'll show you real quick. 
this is the area in question, and you'll see the names that we're mentioning uh, sideways on the map there. He says, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? It's an interesting question. Uh, the, the boys don't seem to have a great deal of concern for their father or the household here. But instead, they, they prop up their actions. Should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? Daddy, are you saying that was okay? Are you saying what happened was uh, supposed to happen? Or that we're to tolerate these kinds of things with our sister? And they... The, the verbiage kind of gives way to a concern for her reputation, a little more so than maybe even her health or well-being. We find God's man, Jacob, troubled, according to the text, stirred up over his reputation among the inhabitants. His larger concern even seems to be in the fact that he cannot hope to fight or defend what his boys had done. Times are hard again, and Jacob doesn't talk to his boys about God, does he? He says, what have you done? I'm going to be killed. Me and my whole house. I, I, I wish we were reading that Jacob fled to the Mount of Olives to pray that God would deliver his boys from this feeling of needful vengeance, that he would wash over them, that they might repent. But Jacob doesn't mention God at all. The boys present a sound question to their father, one that he should have labored to answer with them from the beginning. Should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? Jacob chose instead to not lead in this event, leaving only his historical testimony to speak to his boys. Jacob was a usurper. And as we said a few lessons back, he sought to usurp God multiple times up to this point already. In other words, only how he had led in the past was left to speak in regards to how they should handle this current situation. Hence, they did not turn to the Lord, but rather sought to deceive. Just because their, their tricker worked does not mean God condoned or was honored by it. He will not bless man's wickedness no matter the results. What a devastating situation. And, and parents who might be here or watching or listening, if you have young folks, I'm going to probably give you the most disheartening advice I can give you. And what a night. This is first night here, and here it comes. Every trial from this day will be harder than the trials you have this day. There'll be good days. There'll be bad days. But that living person is going to grow eventually he'll start walking he'll find worse problems than he finds in your arms eventually he'll start reaching things and locking everything up won't be an option anymore they'll have to learn discernment no don't touch that no that's sharp no that's dangerous eventually they'll lose interest in the countertops and turn towards a desire of greater deceit and maybe even the opposite sex and lies will come, and the car keys will come, and freedom will come, and the dangers just continue to grow. 
There is never not a good time to start leading your children in the way in which they should go. And the Bible has promised they will not depart from it. You have to grow with every challenge your child goes through, every challenge your child presents, or they will end up leaving you behind. That's not as good as it might sound, Mom, Dad. They leave you behind. They no longer have an interest in your counsel, your advice. They'll turn around like these two did and give the stump of all questions that led to their decision. Should he deal with our sister as an harlot? Answer the question, Dad. Is this how we should get along with the Canaanites, the Shechemites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, all of those that you'd mentioned such concern over? Is this how we should deal with them? Go have some more daughters, Daddy. No dad would ever say that's how it should be. But what did Jacob say? How did Jacob bleed? An interesting thing is noted here when we consider numbers. Jacob's two sons and possibly some servant men that answered to them took down the entire Shechemite camp, killing the men, enslaving the women and children. They never seemed to even doubt that they could. They seemed fully confident. Jacob, though, is once again filled with doubt and fear over how his people will fare against what comes next. This is surely not the first time we've seen fretting Jacob instead of chosen Israel. But what a contradiction. What a contradiction. His boys had more confidence in their deceitfulness and their usurping and their sinful actions than he has as he's been seemingly hiding this whole time. Coming back to the boys and their question to their father as we close, consider again the proposition Hamor had made at the start of the chapter. Dinah was raped, and the offer was for them to purchase her as an harlot. Then the proposition was that they unite as a people, and in the delivery back to the Shechemites, it is made clear that their desire was to purchase Dinah and all of Jacob's people. That's what Shechem and Hamor had taken back to their people. This was their desire. Satan's plan had not wavered from the start. Jacob's house has the promised seed. Jacob's house must be broken, defiled. They must be tormented. They must realize that they're weak and inferior, and Jacob seems to realize it. He doesn't seem to have the faith he needs quite yet in the God who has been with him this entire time, but he seems to realize that Satan is never going to give up that he is greatly outnumbered with enemies everywhere. Remember the marker where he last saw Laban was a boundary. You shall not cross this line again to come over here, and I will not cross over this line again to come over there. He spent 20 years in the same fear of Esau. Where will he go now? Again, he knew what was pronounced back in the garden. Satan did. He was there. He knew that there would be some form of deliverance based on how that chapter 3 had closed. He's been tracking down the promised seed for every generation thus far. He knows it's Jacob. He knows it's in his lineage. He knows it's one of these kids in this complicated home with so many mothers. It's got to be one of Jacob's children. Through the raping of Dinah, an inlet had been found into their home. Trouble. A, a dastardly famine 
had come upon them. And as we said last Sunday, Satan will play dirty at all times. And through that consistent pressure, he will most likely find a way in, lest we arm ourselves. They say the most destructive force in the world is water. Think about it. While you rest at night, water continues to beat, does it not? Think of a waterfall as it's coming down. And when we go to bed and rest, it just keeps coming down and coming down and coming down and coming down. And when we rise, it keeps coming down and coming down and coming down. And it beats and it beats and it beats. And it beats the soil and everything that it hits into submission. The, 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 the ground does not stand a chance. Now, we could walk up to a, a body of water and a body of land and step on it real hard and say, this land is much more firm than water. Water gives way to the touch and my foot goes to the bottom. But water wins over time. The devil works very, very similarly, continuing to pound us and pound us and pound us. And we talked about the fiery darts, but here is just a, 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 a tsunami-type wave. Some waves are bigger than others, but it just keeps coming. Just keeps coming. Anybody remember about a month ago now the two tornadoes, three tornadoes in three weeks, and what that felt like? And at the end of it, we were all so exhausted because all of us were on a, a watch or a warning of some type for almost a full month. Every Friday, it just kept coming, just kept coming. And we were weary, were we not? This is happening to Jacob's home. Why is it happening? These are God's people. It's happening because these are God's people. Because they're in this world, this fallen, dying world. And sin will continue to come. Temptation will continue to come. Think of Job and count yourselves fortunate. Count yourselves blessed that maybe up till now you haven't been tested in the same way that Job has been. Everything was taken away. If you go back and read the first couple chapters of Job, it came from every direction. From the north, the south. Every direction was coming to pillage and hurt Job. And yet he didn't lose faith. And the, the, all these, uh, these things that happened that took his, his land, his, his cattle, his fields, his kids, all of these things happened physically. His friends came in emotionally for more chapters than what it took to destroy everything else, continuing to pummel him. Must be some sin in your life, Job. Must be some sin or worthlessness in your life, Job. You might have brought this on yourself, Job. You think the devil wasn't behind that as well? Job is a picture of what Satan has planned for every child of the king in this room. Because he does not want you to remember the meeting from last weekend. He does not want you to be rejuvenated or excited for what the kingdom has in store for us. He doesn't want, to, he wants you to think about the joys of Christianity, which is why so many of us walk around moping and sad without some kind of joy in our heart. Because the devil has just continued to wear us down. What do we have of Jacob's home as we conclude chapter 34? Again, we see a home without leadership. Dad who failed to lead, and at least one mother who is still hiding idolatry that she stole from her father, Laban. We see Shechemite influences. Uh, text tells us that the men were slain, but the women and children were taken. So now we have Shechemite influences. And we have traditions and practices of the world that have now started to take root in the home. 
Jacob and his family desperately needed to come out from among the world and return to God. But Jacob, at least at the end of Genesis 34, is cowering in fear of what man will do unto him. Uh, if you don't like cliffhangers, you're certainly welcome to read ahead. God does not forsake his own, which is encouraging, which I hope we'll be able to deliver it in such a way. Uh, it, it will be three weeks before we pick up the next part of this, so I would encourage you to go read the next part. But what a thing. I think we can see from this, from this lineage, at least the last two gener three generations of the promised seed, just how easy it is for us to lose our way a bit. How easy it is for us to suddenly rest on our own arms, our own plans, our own lies, all the way back to Abraham before he even started on the journey saying, Sarah, it gets rough. You're my sister and my sister only. And every, one, every child of Abraham thus far that's come out of that has also had some kind of plan of his own that has competed with God. It has not been victorious, but competed with God. I encourage you tonight. Analyze your heart. We're going to the Lord's Supper on Sunday. What plans do you have that are yours? And what plans are you aware of that you know are God's? Make sure that God's are preeminent. Make sure there's a Lord willing before all other plans. Make sure that we serve him first. He has our, our good intentions in mind with everything that he brings about and, and permits to, to occur. Let's make sure that we pace ourselves behind the Lord.